Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word that it applies to our lives today. And Lord, as we look at the example of the, of the furnishings in the tabernacle, Lord, how they each one are such a clear picture of your son, but also, Lord, how each element or implement, Father God, has a clear picture and application for our lives today. And Lord, I just pray that we'd walk away from this place, Lord, having a burden and a heart to draw near unto you, to know you in a more personal and intimate way, Lord, the way you desire to know us. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. May you be our teacher tonight. We're desperate to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. In Exodus chapter 25 through 31, we saw the instructions being given by God to Moses about the building of the tabernacle. They've escaped out of bondage, or God has brought them out of bondage in Egypt. He's led them out by the power of His Holy Spirit, using Moses as the implement or the tool, and God brought them out and delivered them from bondage, and now they're no longer under the bondage of, of the Egyptian army, or the Egyptians. Now they've been led out, and after that He gave them instruction. Moses went up on the mountain, and He gave them clear instruction on how to build the tabernacle. And now we get to chapters 35 through 39, and we're going to see those instructions being carried out. And as I mentioned last week, I think it's significant that many of these chapters, are almost, they're almost word for word from chapters that came, in, in tonight's case, the chapter 25, it's here being repeated almost word for word in chapter 37. And some people just like to kind of read through it and move on. But here's the reality. If God says it twice, I think we need to look at it twice. Amen? You know, it says many times in the Bible, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly. That means listen, listen. And if God says something once, we need to pay attention. If He says it twice, we really need to watch and listen to what He has to say. So tonight we're going to continue to look at the material and furnishings of the tabernacle that symbolized God's dwelling among His people. The tabernacle is a place of sacrifice, a place of restoration, a place of ministry, and a place of intimacy with God. And we'll continue to see clearly that the tabernacle and every furnishing in it points to Jesus Christ very clearly. I told some of you, I was on a flight back from Israel just a few months ago, and I was talking to a Jewish lady, and I was going through the tabernacle with her and just telling her how clearly it was a picture of Christ. She still didn't get it, but we'll just keep praying for her anyway. But it's so clear, and such a clear picture. Hopefully you'll see that tonight. You know, John, it, last week we looked at the tabernacle. And in John 1.14 it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ. And it's the Word there for dwelt is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And it's not by chance that the Word there is tabernacle because the tabernacle is a very clear picture of Jesus Christ. Now just to catch you up, I'm not going to take a lot of time, but last week we talked about how the tabernacle indeed does point to Jesus. First of all, it was a temporary dwelling. It was not the temple. It was a temporary tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness. Just as Jesus' time on earth was temporary. It was for 33 years. We also saw, again, that it was used in the wilderness. We know that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. We know that Jesus, the Bible says, had no place to lay his head. And we also know that he had freed mankind from the bondage of sin. And they wandered aimlessly in the, in the wilderness separated from God prior to that. A picture of Christ. We also saw last week that the top layer of the... Uh, curtains was badger skins. And we talked about the fact that it made it very humble in appearance. 
And we know that the Bible says this of Jesus. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. So it was humble in appearance, just as our Savior is humble in appearance. Again, outwardly humble, but inwardly beautiful, just as we saw in the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord. Now last week we saw the first layer, and again, I'm just going to go through this real quick, but we see that, that this first layer of this tapestry or this curtain of the tabernacle, this first layer was the most beautiful of them all. But it could only be seen from the inside. It reveals that, again, with Jesus, while outwardly he had nothing special that the world would come to him, inwardly he's Almighty God and the creator of the universe, as Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. That beautiful tapestry was made of fine white linen pointing to his righteousness. It was made of blue linen, which points to heaven or his deity, purple pointing out his royalty, scarlet pointing out the fact that he is our sacrifice, and woven into it were cherubim, or angels. Angels were with Jesus at his birth, They were with Jesus when he was out in the wilderness, and they also were with Jesus when he was in the garden, when he was sweating great drops of blood. The second layer was black goat's hair. So above this beautiful tapestry was this black goat's hair, this curtain that was just covered. So covering the beauty was this black blackness and a representation of sin. So this beauty was blocked or, or taken away because of this covering. And we know that the black goat's hair one was, was larger so that it completely covered. So to the naked eye, once that black curtain went over it, you could no longer see the beauty that was underneath. A picture of how sin separates man from God. It's interesting that it was goat's hair. How many of you have ever heard the term scapegoat before? You know where it comes from? It comes from the Israelites. The Israelites, when they would go out, and part of their tradition on the Day of Atonement is they would take a goat out into the wilderness, and they would confess the sins of Israel over the goat, and they would send it out into the wilderness to die, in a sense to carry away their sins. And you know what? That's where the word scapegoat comes from. So the fact that this is black goat's hair is not by chance, because it's a picture of the sins of mankind. We know the third layer was then ram skins dyed red, again a picture of the cross. And we, we go back to Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac, he takes him up, and there's no sacrifice, and just as he's about to sacrifice his son, a picture of Christ, carrying up the wood, a picture of the cross, he looks in the thicket, and what does he see? A ram. And it says, the Lord provided himself a sacrifice. The ram skins dyed red was a picture of the cross. And the fourth layer, again, as we talked about, was the badger skins that had nothing really spectacular about it. We also saw last week the boards that were linked together, a picture of the church. Then we saw the veil made of that same beautiful tapestry. We know in Hebrews 10 it says that the veil is his flesh. Remember how the veil was put up? It was hung on four wooden pillars, a picture of the cross. So that brings us to this week. And I want to say that lastly, the last thing that we saw last week was there was a, a one door into the tabernacle. There was only one way in, and it too was made of that same tapestry, which is a picture of Christ, because there's only one way that we can come to heaven. There's only one way that we can come to Almighty God, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. So tonight, we're going to begin looking at the furniture in this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And the four things we're going to see tonight is the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the Golden Lampstand, and the Altar of Incense. And if you're taking notes tonight, you'll see that each of them is a clear picture of Christ, and you'll see that each one of them has a clear application to our lives. So as we go through, we'll take a look at those. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 37, looking at the Ark of the Covenant, a type or a picture of the cross. Look at verse 1. Then Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, Bezalel means in the shadow of God. We've talked about this the last three weeks. We talked about how he 
Again, the shadow of God, I like that. Walking close to God without touching His glory. We know that He was called by name by God. That this guy was a master craftsman equipped by the master. Amen? And every gift that we have, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Amen? Any gift that you have, any ability that you have came from the Lord and should be used for His glory, not yours. You know, I, I love watching football. I mean, I do. But I'll tell you what. Some of the things about it I don't like. A guy goes in and tackles somebody and gets up and takes his helmet off and goes like this, right? And it's just pride, right? Now, who gave you the ability to rush the quarterback, man? That was God who gave you that ability. Who alone ought to be glorified? But sometimes you want to do it. Can you imagine being an accountant and doing that? Adding up the numbers. It's right! Get up out of your cubicle. You know what I mean? Add it up. Check it out, man. No calculator. Ah, right? I mean, but that's the pride of man that we want to take glory instead of point people to Christ. And so here, Bezalel has been called by God, but he's not bringing the glory into himself. He walks in the shadow of God, and he wants God alone to be glorified, and we too should do the same. Any good gift that we have comes from God and should be used for His glory. He was anointed for practical ministry, called by God. They used acacia wood, and we've talked about this, that it's the only wood that grows in the wilderness that has thorns. Thorns in the Bible are a picture of what? Sin. Remember the thorns came into existence after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and that's why Jesus had a crown of thorns placed upon his head, a picture of sin. It's still used today by the Bedouin people, and it's interesting, when you pierce acacia wood, there's a gummy substance that comes out of it, and it's used for healing. They put it on wounds, and it's used like a healing balm. Isn't that interesting? This thorny wood is pierced, and a healing balm comes out. Picture of the cross, isn't that clearly, right? And they're using acacia wood in the building of the Ark of the Covenant that too is a picture of the cross. Now this box was 45 inches by 27, 45 inches tall, about 4 feet tall, by 27 inches by 27 inches. So this is a box, not a boat, okay? This is the Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark, amen? And so this is a small box, but it's very significant in what's going to be placed in it. Verse 2. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to bear the ark. So on the four corners, we see that there's going to be rings. And we've talked about in the past that wood pictures the humanity of Christ. What was he crucified on? A wooden cross. And the gold is a representation of his deity. No longer is he hanging on a wooden cross, but he's wearing a golden crown. Amen? And so the wood overlaid with gold pictures both the humanity of our Savior and the deity. That he's both 100% God and 100% man. No other man can claim that because no other man is God. And there's only one way that we can get to heaven. Now, there were, on these, were, there were rings on all four sides. And the reason for that was that it was to be carried. The ark was never to be touched. Only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could the great high priest go in and sprinkle blood on the ark. But no man was to ever touch the ark. And so when they carried it, they carried it on these poles that went through these rings. And it was because they were not to touch the glory of God. And, we're gonna, and I'm going to read something to you in just a moment that shows you what happens when you go outside of that. Now, the ark was in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt there. And it was carried again on poles. And let me read something to you. I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you want to look it up later, it's in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 7 through 10. I said, so they carried the ark of God on a new cart 
from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all of Israel played music before God with their, with their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, with trumpets. And when they came to Shidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him dead, because he put his hand on the ark, and he died there before God. Now, they put the ark on a cart, and they're pushing the ark on this cart, and then the oxen start to stumble, the cart starts to fall, and this servant of God reaches out and touches the ark, and God strikes him down dead. Man, that doesn't, just doesn't seem right, does it? But you know why this happened? Why did this happen to Uzzah? Why did it happen to the people? Because they were not reading the word. You know what? They, just, they, thought, they came up with a man-made plan. They used man-made wisdom. You know, it'd be a lot quicker to carry that thing if we put it on a cart and had some oxen pull it. I mean, we're carrying this thing around on poles. It's getting a little heavy. I'm thinking carts. Yeah, cart sounds good. You know, the other guy with holding the pole, I, I think let's go for the cart, right? Uzzah found out cart not good, right? Because what happened was he touched the glory of God. He used the wisdom of men instead of being obedient to God's word, and he soon was dead in the street. And you know what? The same happens to us. If we start to think we have a better plan than God's word, we start to think that our wisdom or our knowledge or our intellect or our intelligence, you know what? The answer to every problem in your life is right here. We don't need anything else. We don't need to go anywhere else. God's word is sufficient. And so we need to spend our time in his word to know his word. And straying from God's word and trusting in our own devices will result in disobedience and righteous judgment coming from Almighty God. They went contrary to God's word, resulted in touching God's glory, and resulted in God's righteous judgment. Let's move on and talk a little more about the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 6. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width. So the mercy seat was 45 inches by 27 inches, and it was a lid for the ark. And again, the ark itself was, the, was where we know that the Ten Commandments were, the rod of Aaron, and a jar of manna. Why were those three, three things in the ark? Who's that a picture of? Who's it a picture of? Jesus Christ. Manna. Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. The Aaron's rod. Who's the great high priest? Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments, who's the fulfillment of the law? It's Jesus Christ. But upon that law, upon that ark, was placed the mercy seat. This plane that would watch over and protect. This thing where we would receive grace and mercy. Verse 7 through 9. He made two cherubim of beaten gold. Cherubim, another word for angels. He made them of one piece at two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end on his side, and the other cherub at the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. So the mercy seat and the, the cherubim were all of one piece of gold. We know later it weighed 75 pounds of gold that they hammered perfectly into this one big piece that there was mercy seat, the place where the gold was sprinkled, and then the angels, or the an- angels with their wings spread out, touching at the top, a picture again of the angelic host surrounding that mercy seat. Verse 9, the cherubs spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another, the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, and Revelation 4, we know that they faced the mercy seat. We know that the angels were woven into the veil. So when you went to that most holy place, what did you see with the Ark of the Covenant? You saw angels made of gold over the top of the mercy seat, 
And then behind you, the veil was covered with these woven angels. And then above you, in the beautiful tapestry, we see the angelic host. And the reason for that is that there's both a picture of Christ and also a picture of heaven that we see very clearly here. In Genesis 22, or 25, 22, it says, God's presence, the word there is kabod, or his glory, dwelt above the mercy seat. And God meets us where? In a place of mercy. And in heaven we know that the angels are surrounding the throne of God, and the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of God's throne, with the angels all around about him singing his praises forever and ever and ever. The angelic host is praising him right now. And so when we sing on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night, or driving in our car, we're joining that angelic host and lifting up his name and glorifying him because he's worthy to be worshipped and to be praised and to be honored. Amen? You know what? You want to know what heaven's like? Close your eyes and start worshipping a little bit. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be worshipping. Amen? One of the few things we're going to do in, in heaven that we do on earth. Now you might ask yourself, why in the world they built, they, they got the tabernacle in place, but why do they build the ark first? Since it's in the most holy place, and it's the last implement that you would come to when you came into the tabernacle, why would the ark be built first? Let me tell you why. There's a spiritual significance. Because we don't work our way to the cross. We don't go through the, the altar burn incense and then through the bronze laver and then by the golden lampstand and then through the bread of presence and then through the altar of incense and then through the veil and then to the cross. Our salvation doesn't end at the cross, it begins at the cross. Amen? And that's why the ark was built first, because we don't do 12 steps to heaven. Amen? We don't go through a bunch of rules. We don't go through a bunch of rituals. We don't have 19 classes we have to take, and confirmation, and this and that, and all these other things that at some point, maybe down the road, will lead to salvation. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Amen? It's not Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And we cannot get away from that. And that's why the ark was built first. Because that's where salvation begins and ends. It's at the cross. And that's why the ark was the first thing. And again, the Ten Commandments, a picture of Christ, the manna, everything in it points to Jesus. Now the ark's contents would condemn man. You know, if you looked into the ark, you're done. The Ten Commandments. How many of you guys have ever broken one of the commandments before? If your hand's not up, you're lying because you just broke another one, right? I mean, we're breakers of the commandments. We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And so if we look directly into the ark, we're in big trouble. There's a great high priest, the man, he's our provider. But the law is a taskmaster or a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. That's what the Bible says. So praise God that the ark is not just lying there open or we'd all be in big trouble. But upon the ark is the mercy seat. And praise God that we're not judged based on the law, but based on His mercy. That's what gets us into heaven. It's His mercy and His grace. You know, the Pharisee stood before and was giving of his offerings, was praying to God, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And God was grieved by him. But the tax collector came and said, God, be, mercy, be merciful to me, a sinner. What do we need for salvation? We need mercy. The law reveals that we are sinners, but we need mercy. We need God's grace and His forgiveness. Now the other thing that we see is these cherubim were there, that when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, he would bring and he would sprinkle the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb on the center of the mercy seat. And it's interesting to me that on Easter Sunday morning, and I know Randy's been there, myself and my dad, I don't know if any of you ever have been to Israel, when you go into the garden tomb, those people when Mary showed up or when the 
the apostles showed up and they came into that tomb and Jesus was no longer there, what did they see on that, in the tomb? They saw the blood on the center where Jesus had been crucified. And the blood was there and what was seated at the foot and at the, at the head of where he had been? Angels, the Bible says. And when they walked in, they saw an angel on both sides. They saw the blood in the middle, a very clear picture of the mercy seat. A very clear picture of the Ark of the Covenant. They're in sprinkling blood, a picture of the cross that would happen several thousand years later. The Bible, nothing happens by chance, amen? God's Word is perfect. His plan is perfect. And the Ark is a picture of the cross and a picture of Sunday morning when they went in and He was risen from the dead. Buddha dead, Hare Krishna dead, Mary Baker Eddy dead, Charles Taze Russell dead, all the prophets of the world dead, but Jesus Christ, risen living Savior, triumphed over sin and death. Amen? We don't serve a dead God. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad we can't go dig up the bones of our God. That would be pretty weak. You know, you go get, dig up Joseph Smith's bones. He's a dead guy. We don't serve him. We serve a risen and living Savior. The ark points to Jesus Christ. Our faith is not in the ark, but in the one that the ark points to, and it points to Jesus. So now we move on to the table of showbread. He made a table of acacia wood. Again, there's that wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold all around it. So this table is 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches tall, and made it all out of gold. Now, it says in Exodus 25, And you shall set showbread on the table before me always. Now, as we read through the rest of this, let's keep reading on here verse 12. He made a frame of handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. And the rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table, overlaid them with gold. He made of pure gold the utensils which were on the table, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, its pitchers for pouring. Now, remember the reason that, that these things are so portable is they are going to be wandering in the wilderness. And every time they got up to move, they had to tear the whole tabernacle down and carry it to the next spot and reassemble it and put it all back up. And you know what? Every time they did it, can you imagine the work that went into doing that? Can you imagine the number of people tearing it down, picking it up, putting it back up? And the reason for that is that they needed to know and understand that forgiveness of sin would not come cheap. That it was not going to be easy. The gift is free, but it's not cheap. Amen? Jesus had to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. They needed to see their desperate need. And without that tabernacle, that place of sacrifice, they were done. And so they had to tear it down and set it up and tear it down. Now the Bible tells us that the tabernacle is where today? Where is it? In the gym at VHM. Now where is it? We're right here. We are the tabernacle. We are the tent, the building, or the place of the Holy Spirit. And aren't you glad that we don't have to go out and every week set up it? Well, I guess we do a little bit. We put chairs up, set up, tear down. But the good news is that we are the tabernacle. And praise God for that. But it says in Exodus that, that on this table they were to put 12 loaves of bread. And there was one loaf of bread for each tribe. And it was called the showbread of presence because it was placed before God. It's a picture of the fellowship and communion between God and His people. It points to Jesus as the bread of life. You're going to see that on Sunday. Those of you here this Sunday, Jesus is going to talk about being the bread of life. And here we very clearly see it pointing to the message Jesus is going to give several thousand years later. 
And so that table that was in that holy place was a picture of fellowship, the bread of presence, of being in the presence of Almighty God. And He is the manna that's given to us. We could not be in His presence apart from Christ. Apart from the bread of life, we cannot be in the presence of the Father. And so as you would walk into that holy place, you would see this table of showbread, and through that bread, that's what they fed the priests with. They ate of that bread, and Jesus is the bread of life. Fellowship being with God's people, spending time in God's presence. And you know what happens when you spend time in God's presence? You get fed spiritually. Amen? When you spend time with the Lord, you can't help but get fed. You can't help but grow. You know what I love? Can I tell you, I'm just blessed. Some of you guys are falling so in love with Jesus, it just blesses me. I see some of you guys so hungry for the Word, and you you got tapes, you come and talk to me about the Word all the time, and I'm reading my Bible. Man, I love that. And the reason I love it is because the more time you spend with the Lord, the more you can't get enough of Him. Man, I just, I, I want more of His Word. I want more time with Him. It's a blessing just to see you guys falling in love with the Lord. And so the table of showbread, a picture of fellowship, of being in the presence of Almighty God, of being fed spiritually. We move from there to the golden lampstand. He also made a lampstand, verse 17, of pure gold. Of hammered work, he made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of one piece. And the six branches came out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Now, the lampstand has another name in Israel today. What do they call it? They have smaller ones. They call them a menorah, right? But this is a seven-branch lampstand. And this is a picture or a a type or picture of Israel today. But when I went to Israel this last time, they showed us a replica that they have made because, you know, they're getting ready to build a new temple, right? You know that. And they've been putting it together. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do know who's going to usher it in. And we'll be in heaven when it happens because it'll be the Antichrist, okay? But as they get ready and prepare themselves, they're looking for one who will come and rebuild the temple. But the good news is we don't need the temple anymore because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the price has been paid, and it is finished upon the cross, but they're wanting to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial system. But this lampstand that we see here had three, and I saw, you know, I stood right next to it. I got my picture next to it. Thing's pretty good size, and it's got seven stems on it, the number of completeness or perfection, and a total of seven branches, verse 19. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece, and all of it was one hammered piece of pure gold. Can you imagine making something that looks like an, an almond blossom and is this massive, beautiful piece out of one piece of gold? You know what? The only way that's going to happen is if you've been gifted by God to do it. Because without Him, we can do nothing. And this man, again, Bezalel, was a gifted master master craftsman. God's hand was upon him, and he was gifted for this ministry. It was patterned after a flowering almond tree, provided light for the priests serving in the holy place. So they would go into the holy place, and we're going to see in a moment that they would fill it with burning, with oil. And that oil they would burn, and and they would go in night and day to light the lamp. And they would light it to, to illuminate that most holy place, and it was lit constantly. Now, 
Read on to verse 20 and 21 here. Verse 21. Verse 22, excuse me. The knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was hammered of, 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 one, of pure gold. Now, what is this a picture of when it comes to Jesus Christ? When you come into that place and we see this golden lampstand, we see that the table of showbread is a picture of fellowship and presence with him, that he is the bread of life. And the lampstand is a picture of the fact that he is what? He is the light of the world. Without him, we'd be in pitch black darkness. It's interesting that in Revelations, uh, Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands, which are a picture of the church. In John 8, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk, walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And we too are to be the light of the world, the moon reflecting the sun, like we've talked about so many times. But here's the thing. Have you seen people trying to walk around in pitch black darkness? What a disaster. Have you seen it? People walking around in the dark, man, banging their head against the wall, and then you flip a light switch on and everything makes sense. You ever try to walk through a room you've never been for in the dark and you're tripping over chairs and you're, you're messing yourself up? And the reality is that that's the way life is without Jesus Christ. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, without understanding that comes from God, we're just a bunch of blind people walking through a dark room. We have no idea where we're going. We're banging our head against the wall. And that's the world. But Jesus is the light of the world. And what is the application for us? Let me read to you from one of my favorite... Well, I, I, it's hard for me to say I have a favorite part of the Bible because I love the whole thing. But Matthew chapter 5, and this is the Sermon on the Mount, and it says this, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I told you before that one of my favorite songs when I was a little kid is, This is the light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Have you ever heard that song before, right? Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine, right? When, when uh, Tiffany and Cole got married, she actually came down the aisle to that song. This is the lad, and she's coming down. We're all clapping. It was all good, though, because it was pointing to Jesus. And we are called, so as he is the light of the world, and we are Christians, followers of Christ, we, too, are to be light to a lost and dying world. God doesn't take, I mean, the, the city doesn't take all the lamps and put them all on one street. You don't have all the light posts on one street in Santa Cruz County and a bunch of other places that are dark. They spread them out all over the county. And the reason they do is they need light everywhere. And God's done the same with us. He's put you in your job to be the salt and the light of that place. And nothing happens by chance in His kingdom. Verse 24. 23, excuse me. And He made its seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold, He made it with all its utensils. A talent of pure gold weighs 75 pounds. So this lamp weighs 75 pounds, this lampstand. Again, one piece, pure gold, hammered into, perfect, into a perfect thing. Why? Only because God and the power of the Holy Spirit enabled him to do so. With God, we can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So the lampstand is a picture or an application for us that we're called to be the light of the world. So with the Ark of the Covenant, we see that it's a picture of the cross. The application for us is that we must die to ourselves. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You get to the table of showbread, it's a picture of the fact that he is the bread of life. But it's also a picture of our need for fellowship. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, and all the more as the day approaches. We need to be gathering together more and more, not less and less. Amen? 
I know me, I know for me, and sometimes I know it's hard for you guys. You work all day, and the easiest thing to do would just to be sit at home and get a bag of potato chips out and a Diet Coke or something and uh, watch TV, right? I know that's easier to do. I've done it myself. But the reality is that I do that, and I do, my brain just kind of turns to mush, right? Two hours, uh, what'd you want? I don't remember. You know what I mean? Just, we're just sitting there, window into hell in the corner of my living room, uh, right? Half the time I go out, and my kids are sleeping in front of it, the light's still beaming on the thing, got to carry them to bed. And you know, the reality is that it just drains our time, and it doesn't draw us closer to God. It doesn't draw us deeper into His presence. And we should be gathering together more and more. So the table of showbread is a picture of fellowship, and the lampstand points to us being the light of the world, and it talks about our need to be evangelizing or sharing our faith. Who's called to share their faith? Everybody in this room. Amen? He didn't call you to be a pew potato. He didn't call you to be the biggest, fattest, best-fed sheep in Santa Cruz County. Uh, yeah, getting fed. Uh, right? I mean, I want a bunch of 950-pound sheep that can't get out the door. God saved us so that we might be used for His glory, that we might be a conduit of the Holy Spirit to a lost and dying world all around us. You know what? We ought to be glowing in the dark for Jesus. There's divine appointments every single day. And I love how God will use us if we'll just be available, not able. So the last implement, as we finish up here, is the altar of incense. So we go from this table of showbread fellowship to this lamp, golden lampstand, which points to evangelism. And we're going to finish off with, I believe, is the most important one we're going to talk about tonight outside of the ark itself. Verse 25, and I'll tell you why in a minute. He made the incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its width was a cubit. It was square. And two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around, and its horns. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it. Now, there are two different altars in the tabernacle. In the outer courtyard, before you get into the most holy place, there was a bronze altar. Bronze in the Bible is a picture of judgment or brass. You remember when he held up the brass, the serpent, the brass serpent on the pole? And when they looked to it, after they'd been bitten by a snake, that they would be healed? Remember when Samson was captured, they put him in bronze or brass fetters. Bronze, a picture of judgment. And as they first came into the, the tabernacle, they had to come first and make sacrifice for their sin. But this one is not made of bronze, it's made of gold, which speaks of deity. And the gold altar was made not for sacrifices, but for incense. The bronze altar is a picture of Christ here on earth. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die that we might have eternal life. The brass, this golden altar, is a picture of Jesus Christ right now. The bronze altar is a picture of Him on the earth, outside of that most holy place, out in the courtyard, among the world, when He came to live a sinless, perfect life and to suffer and die in our place. But that golden altar, where is it in the, in a, in the uh, holy place? It's right next to what? Who remembers? It's right next to the veil. It even says in Hebrews, it equates to it as being a part of the Holy of Holies. And the reason for that is some of that incense was taken into that holy place, the, the Holy of Holies, when the uh, high priest went to make sacrifice. It's also because when they would burn the incense, that it would filter and pour right in to the Holy of Holies. Now the altar of incense has a very clear picture to us. It's a picture of what Jesus is doing right now, but it's also a picture of prayer and worship. Now this altar was very small, and again, 
It was placed right in front of the veil. Now it was covered in gold, a picture again of the heavenlies. The molding, the word there could also be crown, because that's where Jesus is now. When he was here on earth, again, he was being take judgment of our sin was placed upon him. He wore a crown of thorns. Now he's wearing a crown of gold. He's Almighty God. And where is Jesus right now? Where is he? Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, a picture of prayer. Do you know that when you're tempted that Jesus is praying for you? Have you ever thought about that? Temptation comes. We all know that moment of truth, don't we? You know what I'm talking about? Don't we choose to sin? Don't we choose to sin? Amen? We don't, oh yeah, I, got, I just accidentally sinned. No, you didn't. You chose. You didn't fall into sin. You didn't slip. Devil can't make you do anything. Contrary to what Flip Wilson might have to say. Devil can't make you do anything. We choose to sin. And as we choose to sin, we don't fall into it. But at that moment, as the time is there, the Lord is praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf because He loves us so very much. And so it was placed closest all of all the furnishings to the Holy of Holies, the place of Shekinah glory of Almighty God's presence. And it's a picture of prayer. Let me read this to you and then we're going to finish up. Verse 27. He made for it two, two rings of gold for it under its molding, by its corners on both sides as holders for the poles which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Verse 29. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. Now we know in, back in Genesis 30 that this perfume was made of 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of cane, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia, which is from a fragrant bark of a tree. And when you would mix it together, only a perfumer, someone who was called by God to do that, when they put it together, it made the most sweet perfume ever. Now, where else have you seen myrrh in the Bible? Who remembers? Two places. Christ's birth and His death. What were the, the wise men came, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then at His death, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea says they used myrrh as an embalming balm on His, on his body. And so we see myrrh at his birth was his prediction of the way that he would die. And then we see it also at his death. But we see that this is a sweet aroma. And the high priest was to burn incense on the altar morning and evening. It was to be burned perpetually. So this incense, again, is a picture of prayer and intercession. Let me read some verses to you. It says in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. In Luke 1.10 it says, And the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four ill elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So incense is a picture of what you and I do is we, when we pray, it is a sweet aroma in the presence of our Savior. And I believe this also applies to worship. When we worship and when we pray, it is sweet in His presence. Can you imagine that there's something that you and I can do that makes our Savior smile, that blesses His heart? It's when we pray and when we worship. It's not by chance that the altar of incense, this place of prayer and worship, was the place closest to the Holy of Holies. Do you want to know closeness to God? Be a man or a woman who prays. 
You want to know intimacy with the Savior? Be a man or a woman who worships. And it also tells us that as Jesus is praying for us as well, because it says in Hebrews, He ever lives to make intercession for us. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling in times of struggles and trials and difficulty, we can know that Jesus Christ is praying for us. And we are to be imitators of Christ. The Bible says to pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. And the altar speaks not only of the Savior's intercession for us, but also our prayer for others. So we should be interceding day and night. The, the priest was that light it day and night, 24-7. Because the prayers will constantly be lifted up to God. And so too ought we be to, to be people of prayer. Now I want to say something to share with you guys from my heart. I believe that the number one reason that we struggle as Christians is that we don't pray enough. You know what? I have yet to see somebody who spends intimate time with the Lord who walks around with a bad attitude. Amen? Someone's walking around, no, no, kicking the dog, no, 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 bad attitude. You're like, oh, prayer life must be really good right about now, right? I mean, real good devotional life, right? I mean, Satan hates it when we pray. He hates it when we get in the Word. I saw a bumper sticker one time. It said, skip your morning devotion, sign Satan, right? And it's so true that, you know, he doesn't want us to be in the Word because it draws us into the presence of God. He doesn't want us to be people who pray. And I want to talk a moment just about prayer. In Romans, it says the Spirit makes intercession through us. So Jesus is praying for us, and the Spirit is praying through us. Man, I like that. So Jesus prays for us, the Spirit prays through us. What an awesome thing. And we need to be people who pray. The altar of incense in that closest place. The key being, again, to being effective in ministry for the Lord is to have intimacy and passion in ministering to the Lord. People say, yeah, I want to do things for God. But you know what? You need to do things with God. You need to spend time in His presence. The more time you spend with Him, the more you'll become like Him. Why was Moses glowing in the dark when he came down from the mountain? Because he'd been hanging out with God. Amen? Everybody else is hanging out by the golden calf, oh, getting drunk and having a party. And Moses is up there on the mountain. He comes down glowing in the dark for Jesus. You want Him to glow in the dark? Spend time in His presence. It's not a mystery. I know, well, that just seems too simple, Pastor Dave. It is simple. It is. It's not a 12-step program, you guys. It's one step. Lord, I give my life to you. Lord, use me mightily. Father God, draw me into your presence. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes my heart. Amen? You're struggling with anger. You're struggling. You're, 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 you're busy. You're weary. You're tired. Now, you know what? I think it's interesting, though, that it is an altar of incense because an altar requires a sacrifice. And I believe it takes sacrifice for us to pray. Sacrifice might mean setting your alarm 20 minutes early in the morning. Oh, you pastor, you have no idea what you're asking me. No, no, not my sleep, please, right? But it does take sacrifice. And get up a little early. Or turn off, you know, Jay Leno and pray. Amen? I mean, turn off the TV and spend time in the presence of Almighty God. Give something up. Take something aside so you can spend time with the Lord. We're too busy. We're too tired. We're too weary. Satan hates it. But when we pray, it produces a sweet fragrance. People who pray and spend time in His presence, I found, are sweet and kind and loving. And those who lack in a prayer life are angry and self-centered and short-tempered. Again, because prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. If Michael, come on up with the worship team. So we once again saw Moses' faithfulness to deliver God's word, not his opinions, to the people. We also saw the tabernacle furnishings. 
a clear picture of Christ. First of all, how is the ark a picture of Christ? It is a picture of the cross as well as the empty tomb. The lampstand is a picture of Christ because Jesus is the light of the world. The table of showbread is a picture of Christ because he's the bread of life. The altar of incense is a picture of Christ because he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us daily. How does it apply to us? The ark applies to us because the Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We've got to die to self. Only one person can be on the throne, you guys. Amen? It's either you or it's the Lord. God's not going to share it with anybody. We've got to put him there. Second of all, the lampstand. How does that apply to our lives? We're called to be salt in life, sharing our faith, and we are called to be evangelists, to share, to share with the world around us. Every saved person this side of heaven should be burdened for every unsaved person this side of hell. Amen? Do you care the people that live next door to you are going to hell without Jesus Christ? The people that sit, sit next to you at work? They're dying without the Lord. We should, man, our hearts should be broken and our hearts will break if we begin to pray for them. The table of showbread, how does that apply to our lives? It's fellowship. You guys are here. God bless you. We need to be in fellowship. I want to encourage you. Come to the couples retreat. You know, go to the men's retreat next month. Get involved with the women's Bible study, men's Bible study. Show up for stuff where other people are going to be around you and love you and encourage you in your walk with God. Not, you don't show up so you can make God happy. Oh, I blow it. I better go to church. That's not it. We go because we love Him. We want to hang out with Him. We want to get to know Him, and we want to use the gifts He's given us for His kingdom. And then lastly, the altar of incense. How does it apply to our lives? It's a picture of prayer and worship. Ministering to the Lord so that we might minister for the Lord, and it requires a sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your Son. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. And Lord, I pray that we would take this word and apply it to our lives. That we would be people who come first to denying ourselves, taking up the cross and following you. Dying to our will and seeking after your will. Lord, that we'd be people who desire fellowship more than our necessary food. Desiring to be in your presence, to eat of the bread of life. Lord, that we would be like that golden lampstand, a light to a lost and a dying world all around us. And Lord, that we would be like that altar, Lord, that draws near to your presence through intimate, personal prayer time every single day, Lord, just beginning, spending, and ending our day with you. You're such a great and an awesome God. What a privilege it is that we get to know you in a personal way. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. Use us this week for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.